The most famous American in the world was about to have one of the worst days of his life, and everyone who was anyone in London wanted to be there to see it. Benjamin Franklin had been summoned to the cockpit, a room King Henry VIII had once used for cockfighting, to appear before the King's Privy Council in late January 1774. His ostensible purpose for being there was to deal with a petition sent by the Massachusetts colony to have their governor removed, but with the colonists getting all uppity and turning Boston Harbor into the world's biggest teapot, the council was going to take out all of its pent-up frustration with their cranky subjects on America's best-known representative. Franklin wore a simple blue suit of Manchester velvet. He had been in London for ten years and knew most every one of the dignitaries in the room. They were all better dressed than he was. There was Lord Hillsborough, who had sent troops to Boston in 1768, in response to the attempt of the Massachusetts Assembly to raise widespread colonial opposition to the Townshend Acts, which taxed glass, lead, paint, paper, and other goods the colonists used in great quantities. General Thomas Gage was also there, the guy who Hillsborough had ordered to send those troops to Boston, the same ones who, two years later, participated in the Boston Massacre. Gage would go on from the cockpit to kick off the shooting war with the colonies. Lord North, the Prime Minister who had lead Britain through the American Revolution and was forced out of office after the British surrender at Yorktown, was front and centre. In 1768, when he heard that Ben Franklin might leave London and return to America, he tried to persuade him to stay, even offering him a job in the British government. But he wasn't on Ben's side today. Someone who was, or might have been, was the philosopher Edmund Burke, who in a few short years would argue against war with the colonies. The people of the colonies are the descendants of Englishmen, he said, claiming that oppressive taxes would not work out for England, and that the colonies would never back down. The Crown Solicitor General, Alexander Wedderburn, was an ambitious fellow who had used his oratorical skills to work his way up the British government's food chain. Wedderburn was known to be willing to take any side, and then switch sides, if it helped his career. He was admired for his ability to give a good speech, but criticized in secret for his apparent lack of character. He was the king's perfect attack dog for this occasion. The mood in London was fairly angry. News of the Boston Tea Party had just hit the papers. Legal experts in the city said the Tea Party was an act of high treason, for which the punishment was death. Even though the case was supposedly about the petition from the Massachusetts Assembly to remove their governor, Thomas Hutchinson, Wedderburn made it about Ben Franklin and all the troubles the colonies had caused over the last decade. He said Franklin was a leading member of a secret cabal that was determined to destroy the empire. Well, he sure got everyone's attention with that. Benjamin Franklin was no rabble-rouser. He had taught himself to use judicious silence and leading questions when arguing with people. His style was a far cry from the give-me-liberty-or-give-me-death crowd. Although he was in London as an agent for American colonies, his sentiments were very middle-of-the-road. Up to that point, he was not a proponent of a break with the mother country, and counseled patience and restraint to both sides. For example, he, along with George Washington, thought the Boston Tea Party was a terrible idea. The people facing him in the cockpit thought he was the prime mover behind it. The ostensible reason for Ben being on the hot seat 
were some private letters written by Governor Hutchinson that had fallen into his hands. Hutchinson, like Franklin, was a friend of both Colony and Crown, and was trying to find a way out of the collision course the two were on. The problem was that his musings in the letters suggested that the colonists were not entitled to the same rights as Englishmen, and that troops would need to be sent to put an end to the dispute. It was his brother-in-law who he was corresponding with who argued for stronger action, like replacing the elected members of the Massachusetts Assembly with men appointed by the Crown. But there had been too much bad blood between the Assembly and their governor, and since he was the most high profile of the correspondents, Hutchinson got the worst of it. He was burned in effigy, and angry mobs kept showing up at his house. He finally asked for a leave of absence, so he could go to London to clear his name. But the bulk of British ire was reserved for Franklin, who had taken these private letters and made them public. The resulting furor, the Solicitor General claimed, was all his fault. Franklin, in sending the letters to a friend of his in Boston, was just trying to illustrate the thinking that was going around at the time. But once the letters reached Samuel Adams, a fellow who was fond of setting things on fire, things were, well, set on fire. We couldn't keep train wrecks on the tracks without you. Please visit support.historystrainwrecks.com for all the ways you can help keep train wrecks on the tracks. Adams had the letters published in the Boston Gazette, and it was all downhill from there. It became convenient to see the publication of the Hutchinson letters as the cause of the final and irrevocable break between England and America. Blaming Franklin for the resulting debacle wasn't entirely wrong, and besides, he was right there in London, so he was a convenient and high-profile target for an ambitious provincial solicitor general who had an audience of the Empire's movers and shakers right there in the room. Putting the Hutchinson letters out in the world placed a big target on Franklin's back, and he knew it. Wedderburn, in the words of one observer, poured forth such a torrent of virulent abuse on Dr. Franklin as never took place within the compass of my knowledge of judicial proceedings, his reproaches appearing to me incompatible with the principles of law, truth, justice, propriety, and humanity. He spoke for an hour. Most of his audience was delighted as Wedderburn shredded Ben Franklin's reputation. He had obtained private correspondence through nefarious means. The source who had given Franklin the letters is still unknown to this day, and then had them made public in order to break up the British Empire. Playing on Franklin's fame as an inventor of the lightning rod to prevent fires, Wedderburn called him a true incendiary who had set Massachusetts aflame. Wedderburn then moved on from his accusation that Franklin was the evil mastermind behind American defiance, saying that he was not even a real colonial agent, just the creature of men who were using their paid agitator for their own wicked purposes. No one pointed out that the Solicitor General couldn't have it both ways. Franklin was either the prime mover behind American recalcitrance, or he was merely a hired tool of the prime movers. He couldn't be both. This was a point Franklin might have made himself, but he never said a word in his own defense. When Wedderburn's tirade was over, he invited Franklin to respond, but Franklin declared by his counsel that he did not choose to be examined. Ben let his lawyer speak for him. He stayed silent, standing there in his blue suit with no expression on his face. No one else in the room came to his defense. 
In his decade in London, Franklin had known them all, and being a reasonable and affable fellow, had got along well with them. He had done business with some of them and advised others. In the wake of Wedderburn's tongue-lashing, all these men stayed silent. Franklin was fired as Postmaster General and remained in London for a time, his reputation ruined. He sailed for home in 1775, even though his wife had died during his absence, and he said that when he got to America, he would know no one there. He made plenty of new friends, though, when he joined the Continental Congress and got together with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson to craft the Declaration of Independence. There's no way to overstate the effect one hour in the cockpit had on Benjamin Franklin. Up to that point, he had been a strong advocate for peace between England and America, and his fame and reputation for wisdom was helpful in cooling tensions. His innovative way of thinking constantly came up with ways to smooth things over. He believed that the colonists' notion that England was run by men who wanted to deprive them of liberty was unduly paranoid. But after an hour in the cockpit, Franklin believed that the king and his ministers could no longer be trusted. Compromise, after his hour with the king's solicitor general Wedderburn, was off the table. Had he not gone through the ordeal, he might have remained in London, working behind the scenes to forestall war and independence. After his trial, he had little choice but to go back home. If the powerful Englishman he had known and got along with could delight in the vicious attacks against Franklin, one of the most esteemed Americans alive, how would they ever see their colonists as equals and partners? Always a smart fellow, Ben knew the answer to that one. Before the cockpit, he had been working for both sides in the conflict between England and America. After, he was only working for one. An hour in front of the King's Privy Council had turned him from a friend to an enemy, and he wasn't a guy you wanted working against you. The Continental Congress, and particularly that dyspeptic curmudgeon John Adams, who also figured out that George Washington should be the man to lead the army, and eventually the nation, realized that they needed France to win the war. And they realized that there was no better emissary than the sophisticated, urbane, witty, worldly Ben Franklin. His fame and his personality would win over French society and the highest members of its government. Kind of like he had done in England. He sailed for Paris in 1776, even though he was 70 years old and plagued with gout. He made the rounds of high society. Everyone who was anyone wanted to meet the famous American. He was happy to oblige. All he wanted in return was some good Madeira wine, and for the French Navy to go to America and kick the British around a bit. He was able to secure a secret loan and clandestine military support, while the French worked on an alliance with Spain, and waited for a clear American victory over the British, which they got with the Battle of Saratoga in October 1777. France signed a treaty of alliance with the self-declared United States of America on February 6, 1778. France became the first nation to recognize the independence of the United States. The treaty, which was arranged and negotiated by Benjamin Franklin, former colonial agent to the British Empire, has been called the single most important diplomatic success of the colonists. At the treaty signing, Ben Franklin wore the same old worn blue suit of Manchester velvet that he had worn in the cockpit. Silas Dean, one of the American commissioners to France, asked him why. To give it a little revenge 
Franklin replied. On our next episode, we catch back up with Senator Huey Long, making a nuisance of himself to establishment Washington, D.C., and becoming a particular pain in the ass to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Huey's plan? To run against the sitting president in 1936. Stay tuned for The Most Dangerous Man in America, Part 4. Support comes from the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News podcast. The host of the show is a holder of unpopular opinions on topics ranging from politics to health care to foreign policy to what foreign accent you should use when talking to your dog. When the news is on, he tends to rant. It scares the dogs. So his wife revoked his news-watching privileges. So he went and started this podcast. That'll teach her. Go to notalloweddtowatchthenews.com and find out what all the fuss is about.